The people who are the most likely to say that it's unimportant for a child to be raised by two-parent family, they tend to be disproportionately college-educated and affluent. They're the most likely to hold this kind of belief that marriage is passe. But then if you look at who's the most likely to actually get married and have kids and raise them in that situation, it's college-educated, affluent people. Something like 90% of college-educated mothers are married, whereas for women whose highest level of education is a high school diploma, it's something like 60% of the births are out of wedlock. And so it's just a completely different, like that's a massive divide. Welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Dom. Before I introduce my guest, Rob Henderson, a quick reminder that next week I will be in Austin, Texas, talking about uh, writing and reading and anything you want to talk about with Moon Tower Verses. And you can go to moontowerminion.org to find out about that. That is uh, February 29th at 6.30 p.m. We're also doing an unspeakeasy retreat that weekend, March 2nd and 3rd in Austin with guest speakers Sarah Heppala, who's a writer who's been on this podcast many times, and the comedian Ariel Isaac Norman. To find out if there's any availability my guess is there's probably not, but you never know. Go to theunspeakeasy.com. And that's where you can also find out about our many other retreats this year, including Seattle, May 18th and 19th, with guest speaker Katie Herzog of the Blocked and Reported podcast. We'll also be in Louisville in April with uh, guest speakers Corinna Cohn and Nina Paley of the Heterodorks podcast. We'll be in many other cities too, so check it out. Okay, if you listen to this podcast and others like it, you may have heard of the concept of luxury beliefs. It was coined by Rob Henderson, who is my guest this week. Rob has a PhD in psychology, a new book out, has written for lots of media outlets, and writes a very popular Substack newsletter about social issues and how they relate to class dynamics, economic forces, and personal psychology. He also grew up in the foster care system in California and was eventually adopted into a pretty chaotic family and navigated a labyrinth of dysfunction before joining the military and finding his way to the Ivy League. It was there that he noticed that many of his classmates seemed to hold certain ideas about the world at large, often in the name of tolerance, but have very different ideas about their own lives. They held themselves to a much higher standard than they held others to in many cases. From here emerged the luxury beliefs concept. Rob lays all of this out in his new memoir, Troubled, which we talk about in this conversation. Right now, you are listening to the free version of this episode, which means you'll hear about the first hour. There's about another half hour more so to hear it, become a paying subscriber at megandom.substack.com. That's The Unspeakable with Megan Dom. You can just go to Substack and search for it there. In the meantime, here is the first hour of my conversation with Rob Henderson. Rob Henderson, welcome to The Unspeakable. Hey, Megan. Great to be here. I'm really excited to talk with you. Uh, I want to talk about your new book, obviously, which tells the story of your childhood and how you made it out of not only the foster care system, but the chaotic family that adopted you out of that system. 
And from there, you went to the military and then into the world of elite higher education. But you emerged into the idea sphere, let's call it, call it that, uh, a few years ago with a concept you coined as luxury beliefs. And that resonated with a lot of people and was obviously informed by your own life story. So before we go into that story, why don't you just describe what you mean by luxury belief? Yeah, luxury beliefs are ideas and opinions that confer status on the upper class while inflicting costs on the lower classes. And core component of this idea is that the believer is often sheltered from the consequences of his or her belief. And there are different kind of moving parts and frameworks supporting this concept. Um, I developed it after arriving at Yale in 2015 and seeing this kind of this sort of latest iteration of political correctness or what people call wokeness. This was starting to arise in the universities, especially these kind of more selective universities. And by now it's spilled out and everyone kind of knows what happened. But in 2015, it was still somewhat novel. I was extremely perplexed by it. I was seeing, you know, the sons and daughters of millionaires use this language of oppression and victim mindset and all this stuff. And um, I tried my best to understand it. And so, you know, based on those observations and my interest in academic research and in you know, social psychology, which is what I studied and later got a PhD in, is, you know, people are preoccupied with status, with prestige, with reputation, with how they're viewed in the eyes of their peers. And so, you know, the, the idea of luxury beliefs, for me, it starts with Thorsten Veblen, who was a sociologist and economist in the late 19th century, the turn of the 20th century. He wrote this book in 1899 called The Theory of the Leisure Class. And in that book, he basically sort of explicates this phenomenon that people kind of already by now are familiar with, which is that, you know, especially during his time, he, the upper class would express and exhibit their position in society with luxury goods. So tuxedos and evening gowns and top hats and pocket watches and monocles and attending expensive and lavish events and having butlers and, you know, just sort of being seen uh, as having money and performing that social class through their material goods. And if you, so if we fast forward to the mid 20th century, there was a sociologist named Pierre Bourdieu who kind of updated this idea and he coined this term cultural capital. And his claim was that, you know, by this point in the mid 20th century, the elites in society they will convert their economic capital into cultural capital. They'll spend money uh, in order to attend expensive schools and learn the tastes and habits and mannerisms and vocabulary of this upper class segment of society. And so learning about, you know, intricate and subtle, intricate and subtle vocabulary with wine, with artwork, with furniture, with, you know, knowing sort of arcane knowledge about geography or different sort of highfalutin restaurants and food culture and all these things. And so my claim is that luxury beliefs are the latest manifestation of cultural capital. In the past, the upper class would exhibit their status with luxury goods. Now they're doing it with luxury beliefs. And these beliefs basically, they subcommunicate. You know, I attended an expensive university. You know, I spend my time in the right chic circles. I read the right books. I listen to the right podcasts. I, you know, follow the the right legacy media institutions that are staffed by people who also went to expensive universities. 
And so this is why I'm telling you to defund the police or telling you to live in a polycule or why, <laughs> you know, marriage is outdated or, you know, that um, that we should be legalizing all hard drugs. And yeah, I just think it's a, it's a very sort of narrow-minded perspective on the world. And by the way, like, you know, all of these examples, we can get into specific examples of luxury beliefs or some of the ones that I mentioned, but all of this is borne out by data. Like in my book, I documented the, those final chapters when I'm conveying this idea that survey data indicates that, you know, it is the people who have the most education and the most wealth who are the most supportive of defunding the police. They're the most supportive of, uh, you know, whatever alternate relationship arrangements, they're the most supportive of all of these various legalizing all hard drugs um, relative to people with less education and less money. um, People who are in higher socioeconomic positions are more in favor of all of these things. And so, you know, I think it's it's, it's important to understand why that is. And, you know, I, I claim that a lot of it is driven by this struggle for distinction. Right, right. Um, gosh, theory of the leisure class. I remember being in college and reading that and just being like, oh my gosh, this is, this is fascinating. I think, you know, obviously your experience is, is very different from most people who end up at a, you know, in college at all, much less an elite college. But I think there's something about being, you know, feeling a little bit like fish out of water at college and then reading Veblen and being like, oh my gosh, yes, that's right. That's it. It's kind of a little, it's like, a kind of a a handbook for feeling out of place. But anyway, okay, well, that was a great summation of your ideas. Let's, let's back up. So you are, are you in your twenties now? How old are you exactly? I'm 34, but I think on my, on my best days, I can look like I'm still 29. Okay. Well, every, (laughs) everybody's 29. So, (laughs) okay. All right. So, so you grew up in the 90s, in the foster care system in California, mostly. And you got there in a a little bit of an unusual way. Can you just start by talking about who your biological mother was and what happened? Yeah, well, yeah, I opened the book with this story of how I came to enter the foster system in Los Angeles. I was born in LA. My my mother, she was from Seoul, from South Korea. She came to the U.S. to study, and you know, later became very addicted to drugs. And by the time I was three years old, we had been briefly homeless for a time. We lived in a car, and then eventually we settled in this slum apartment in this poor part of L.A. And yeah, my mom was just heavily addicted, and you know, there were reports later that I received from social workers and these documents sort of, um, describing my case and what was, what was occurring. And, but yeah, she would have people sort of in and out of our apartment at all hours of the day and night, trading favors for drugs and, you know, uh, extremely neglectful, uh, possibly or probably abusive. She would tie me, uh, to a chair with a bathrobe belt so that I wouldn't disturb her while she was getting high. And then eventually some neighbors heard me attempting to struggle and break free and cry and, they called the police and they arrived and saw kind of the state of this squalor of the environment and how my mother was not in a position to care for me. She was later questioned by a forensic psychologist and basically asked her like, well, who's this boy's father? Like, you can't care for him. You know, where's his dad? And she actually didn't know who my father was. I didn't know anything about my dad uh, until I took a 23andMe DNA test a couple of, oh, this was pretty recently actually. 
And so I, you know, my, my whole life, like knowing nothing about my dad, but I took this 23andMe test. It's just an ancestry test to see like, you know, what, you know, what was his ancestral sort of background. And um, yeah, he was Mexican. You know, he has, uh, you know, on that side of my, so it's like, you know, 50% Korean and then 50%. It, it was like 19% indigenous North American and like 20 something percent um, Spanish. And so, yeah, it was basically, yeah. And then like you know, 23andMe sort of isolated it to like specific regions in Mexico. So that's, you know, and that was like news to me. I didn't learn I was half Mexican until I was like 33. And so, yeah, no mother. Basically, she was, you know, unable to care for me. I had no father. So I was placed in the LA foster system when I was three years old. And my mother was just like, she, I think, I don't actually know the full story, but essentially she was never able to stop using drugs. She was eventually deported back to Korea. I was an American citizen. I was born in LA. So I just stayed in the foster system. And lived in seven different homes over the next four to five years, almost five years. I mean, it was almost eight when I left. And yeah, it was a kind of a whirlwind of chaos and squalor and instability. You know, I, I recently read that LA has like the most sort of overburdened foster system of all the major cities in the US. And, you know, I don't know if it was the same or worse in the 90s, but I remember some of these homes having upwards of eight to 10 kids living in them. Some of the room, you know, I was like three kids to a room, bunk beds. It was just like there were so many kids in the system and so few foster parents available that, you know, it's just some of these homes are overflowing. And and a lot of these parents, I mean, some of them maybe, you know, have their hearts in the right place and good intentions, but they are paid a certain amount yeah, for each kid I they think take. People- don't realize that sometimes. Yeah, you get a certain stipend from the state for each kid you take in. And so, yeah, if you can take 10 kids at whatever, several hundred dollars each, like that's, you know, that's, that's not, not a non, that's like a non-trivial amount of money you're receiving. And then, and so that was tough, like to constantly be fighting for food and clothes and resources and everything. But then I also write about my experience in the final foster home I lived in, in which I was the only kid there. And that was also difficult in its own way. So before in the other homes, it was like, you know, like I would form bonds, become friends with some of the other foster siblings, and then they would be taken and they'd go to a different home. And so I could never really be certain how long any relationship I ever had would last, whether with the parents, because I was constantly moving to different homes or with the foster siblings, because I would leave or they would leave. And so basically every relationship was temporary and fleeting. But it was still like, by the, once I got to that last home where I was the only kid, that was also very kind of isolating and lonely. And I didn't have any other kids around. And the, my foster mom was like a kind of cold, like, yeah, you know, she distant was like person. putting you to work. That was, yeah. that was surprising. You know, I, I will tell you that uh, I was actually a volunteer in the Los Angeles County foster care system. I was a CASA. Oh, okay. Yeah. So a, a CASA, for people who don't know, is a court appointed special advocate. And uh, it's basically, it's a, this is a national core of volunteers and they work, they get assigned to a case, a, a kid that's in the, in the system and kind of do um, a whole bunch of different jobs, kind of, you know, on, on, in some ways what the, what the social workers, you know, are so overwhelmed that they, that they can't always do. Anyway, we don't have to go into that, but I, this is all just to, to say that I'm pretty familiar with that system and you are correct that it is the most overburdened system in the country, or at least mm. it was you know, eight or 10 years ago when I was doing that, I want to back up a little bit because I have to say, I'm just going to say it, it is, it's very rare for an Asian kid to be in the system. Yeah. 
and well, your mother. I'm, I'm also half Latinx. I know, but we didn't know that. Latin, okay, but we, yeah. Latin. <laughs> is it Latinx? <laughs> is it Latinx? Or I actually, Latinx. I just had I this uh, argument with my the, my uh, co-host of my other podcast. She said Latinx, and I said that's that's not right. I think it's Latinx, <laughs> but I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so your mother. This is so interesting. So your your mother was was deported back to Korea mm-hmm. and you're in the system and you're, you know, you're, you're shuffled around all these different homes. And I'm assuming that the, the plan, so they would call this a, a permanency plan was to get you a permanent placement and an adoptive placement. And so you're with this woman, is it Mrs. Martinez mm-hmm. um, who has you just like, is just, you know, using you as a, as a, you know, just house you're doing all kinds of chores and just, you know, at one point you almost drown because you don't know how to swim and you're cleaning the pool. And they, when you finally do get placed, it is with a mother who is Korean. Yep. Is that the reason they placed you there? I don't actually know. You know, I should, so it's funny, like the whole placement thing, what I think happened is that my case file kind of got lost in the system because I think like it was, it was very clear that I was never going to have like a biological relative reenter my life to care for me. And so I think by the, by the last foster home I was in, I share this report from this child psychiatrist that I was like appointed to see. And he gave this recommendation. Like I recommend finding a permanent and stable placement for Robert, blah, blah, blah. And I remember reading, I'm like, why? <laughs> like, should they have figured this out? Like right. in the only, first or only second now? home? Yeah. What oh, were they yeah, thinking Only five that? years later. And I think what happened was like my father, you know, it was just, it's a big bureaucratic system. They have, they don't have a lot of time to focus on the specific case for each kid. It's just, you know, the, the system is what it is. There's a lot of churn and things happen and you really have to have like, you know, those moments have to occur where like, finally, the state is like, oh, you should see someone the doc, you know, a doctor is like, well, what's going on here? And he sort of interferes and writes this report. And then like, then they take action. But, you know, it can take, you know, years before something like that can occur. And meanwhile, you know, I just had this extreme instability in my early life. Now for, I don't actually know if that's the reason why, because so the way, you know, I, I, I write this in the book, I asked my adoptive mom, you know, how did you come to adopt me? And I tell that story in the book. And, you know, they, she didn't actually see a, a photo of me, but she did receive like a description. And it may have said something like, you know, mixed race, Asian kid or something. And that may have, I, I don't actually know if that played a role in my adoptive mother's decision um, or my adoptive parents' decision to adopt me. But, you know, that probably didn't, um, you know, probably didn't hurt, you know, that, that may have actually, you know, increased the likelihood but of them wanting to meet me and, and see what I look like and, you know, how I behave. Okay. Stuff, yeah. I was you know. curious because it's really far away. So you're, you're in Los Angeles and then they send you up to way Northern part of California. Mm-hmm. And there was, um, not to dwell on this, but I, but you know, they're, they're, you know, caseworkers, these ideas, they go through sort of, you know, trends. So there was, you know, an idea for a long time that for instance, black children should be placed with black parents. Um, and it was really like, you know, it was, it it really fell out of fashion to place, you know, like a black Mm. child with a white family, that kind of thing. So that, that's just why I was wondering. Yeah. Which I think is ridiculous anyway. I mean, I mean, yeah, this is why I'm, I'm reluctant to say that was for certain a factor because even my, my adoptive mother was, um, ethnically Korean, but she was adopted herself into the U S when she was, I think two or three years old, uh, she was adopted by a white working class family in Oregon, my my grandparents. And so she, you know, despite her appearance, she was raised in, you know, just a sort of like working or lower middle class 
life. And she didn't really think about her own ethnicity as like an important part of herself or her life. She just thought of herself as American. And like, you know, she grew up in like a very kind of rural part of Oregon where everyone was just poor and white. And um, yeah, my adoptive father was white. And so I, I, you know, I don't know if it really played that big of a role, honestly, but you know, I, I, yeah, that's, that's a good point. I mean, I think a lot of people are also reluctant to adopt kids that are older. And I was seven, I was, you know, almost eight years old and like, you know, taking in an eight-year-old kid after five years in the system, you know, I don't, yeah, I think probably there weren't that many people willing to do that in LA, but you know, they, they were in Northern California. And so maybe they were just more open to the idea. I don't know. Yeah. No, I just, I, I just was wondering about that. So, okay. So, so you are adopted by uh, a couple, um, a bin, is it uh, Red? Red Bluff. Yeah. Okay. So tell me about them. What, what happened in this household? You're right. So, you know, it was very kind of different part of California than LA. Red Bluff is about two hours north of Sacramento. It's a kind of a dusty blue collar town, a part of California that no one really knows about or talks about, you know, a lot of ranches. It's almost like, I mean, I've never been to like Kansas or something, but it's almost like what I would, I would picture something like that, except like, you know, very rundown. Um, there was, you know, there were issues with sort of meth and drugs and it's, it's located in Tehama County, which is, I think the poorest County in the state or definitely up there. And that's yeah, like one of the most dangerous cities in the state as well. And so, you know, but my, my adoptive parents, my adoptive mom was a, an assistant social worker. My adoptive father was a truck driver. Neither one of them went to college. And so, you know, it was interesting. Like when I was adopted, I was adopted into this you know, I got like a front row seat into what's been happening to like blue collar working class families all across the country. This was happening in Red Bluff where just a lot of single parenthood, a lot of divorce, a lot of instability. And so there was, you know, like a year or so where my adoptive parents were together and it was a stable family. And I remember being really excited about having a mom and a dad and how, you know, I, I called my adopt, you know, the first time I addressed her, I said, Mrs. Henderson. And she's like, honey, you can just call us mom and dad. Like, you know, we're your parents now. And that was like a really special moment for me because I, you know, by now I'd been to enough schools and been in a, you know, talked to enough kids that, you know, I knew that kids had moms and dads and seen it on TV. And I'm like, wow, like, you know, it's just a strange feeling to say those words. So it was, yeah, it was, it was, you know, I, I, yeah, it was, it was like a bright spot in my childhood that year. And then, um, they divorced. Yeah. And that was, that was hard. I, you know, it was hard in, in the sense that I, I did think that it would be stable. I did think it would be permanent, but you know, I, I managed to cope pretty easily, I think just because, you know, I'd been in so many different environments and so many different families that, you know, okay, so we're moving, you know, I moved into with my, with my adoptive mother into this gloomy duplex next to this gas station in town. But at that point, Early on after the separation, I was, my sister and I had, you know, she was their birth daughter. She was my adoptive sister. We would go stay with each parent every other week. We'd sort of switch back and forth. And then one day my mother, my adoptive mother, she sat me down. She's like, yeah, you know, it's just going to be your sister this time. And basically later explained to me that my adoptive father was upset at her for divorcing him. And this was kind of his way of retaliating and you know, he knew that if he stopped speaking with me, this would hurt her. And, you know, it was, you know, really difficult to accept, you know, at, at, I think, how old was I at this point? I think I was not, I was nine. And to even hear that like adults could behave that way was 
difficult to accept. Was this consistent with his character? Like, as you tell this story mm-hmm. now, do you think that that's true? Yes. Yeah, I I think so. I, well, I mean, I don't I don't know why my I don't think my adoptive mother would lie about it. Um, you know, I just yeah, I don't s- see what she would have to gain from saying that. What I know about his, I mean, he's, he was, you know, I, I tried to tell, you know, he was, he, he was a complex person. I think he was good and bad. He, he was a decent father for that year while it lasted, but I know that he was, um, he was upset. Like, I know he was extremely upset, um, with my mother and it was, you know, I think it was unexpected for him too. And so he was just sort of grasping at whatever he could do to, you know, get back at her. And so, yeah, it was, it was hard for me. To deal with that, yeah, yeah. Tell us what kind of student you were at this point, because obviously you end up at Yale and Stanford and Cambridge, and you know, <laughs> you have you certainly achieved, you know, certain kind of you know serious intellectual academic achievement. Um, but so much of the book is about like what a terrible student you were, and you know, you you did get into some trouble and just the kind of crowd that you ran with. And there was really no other lane, it sounded like. Like there there was you were just doing what people did in this town and just fitting in. So can you talk about what the sort of what the social fabric of this town was like and what school was like for you? Yeah, well I was a terrible student when I was in the foster homes. I mean, this was kind of a consistent pattern all throughout my childhood was whenever my environment was chaotic and I was just in a state of uncertainty, of anxiety, of anger, I would do very poorly in school. I mean, there was there was one point where I was doing so poorly in school when I was in the foster homes that they sent a psychologist to evaluate me for a learning disability. I took an IQ test and, you know, at the time I didn't really understand what was going on. I was just kind of angry that I had, like I was sitting at the foster home and the psychologist comes and basically I felt like I had to do homework. I was just mad. But in hindsight, it's just a little bit absurd that, you know, this kid is changing schools all the time and changing families and he's not doing well in school. And the first thing they think is, oh, he has a learning disability. Let's medicalize his issue, put a label on him and, you know, move move along without actually digging into, well, is this kid capable? Maybe he has some potential, but it's just maybe moving him around all the time and changing schools and not actually having the same teacher would have some effect. So when I was adopted, you know, I had eventually taught myself to read when I was in the foster homes. I was adopted. Things were sort of stabilized around me and I did better. You know, there was one point where I got like third place in my school spelling bee, which was actually, I remember the surprise to my adoptive parents because I think they were worried. You know, there were reports uh, in my file that, you know, Robert isn't doing so well in school or he may have some difficulties or we're not sure, you know, whatever. And they were just surprised at how well I was doing after the divorce, you know, whatever academic progress I had made or my focus on schoolwork just sort of fell by the wayside and just angry, angry at my adoptive father for not speaking to me. And, you know, it was just, my mom was working full time. And so I was this latchkey kid and I would, you know, hang out with my friends and get into trouble. And, you know, I had already started drinking beer when I was five. Uh, When I was in the foster homes, I started drinking tequila when I was nine and I started smoking weed and cigarettes and, you know, whatever, like taking pills and yeah, just the kinds of friends that I had around me, that town, you know, it was like very much like, so I, I share this statistic in the book about how in 1960, American 
kids, regardless of social class, 95% of them were raised by both of their birth parents in 1960. And by 2005, for upper class kids, you know, kids with two, you know, having at least one parent with a college degree and, you know, at least I think it's something like, you know, $90,000 a year, however they categorize that, but basically very affluent kids, 85% of them are still raised by two parents. So the vast majority, there was a slight dip, 95% to 85%, but still the vast majority. And by 2005, for working class kids, kids born into working class families, it dropped from 95% to 30%, which is basically what I saw in Red Bluff. I actually thought 30% might have been actually higher than what I was seeing because literally no one I knew. I had five close friends. By the time I graduated high school, I had this circle of like five close friends. None of the five were raised by both of their birth parents. It was me and foster homes and the kind of weird you know, chaotic environment I was in with my adoptive family and the divorces and separations and repartnering. And then my, you know, I had two friends raised by a single mom, one friend raised by a single dad. I had another friend who was uh, raised by his grandmother because his mom was on drugs and his dad was in prison. And that was like a very common story where I grew up. And so those were the guys I was hanging out with. And, you know, so we were, you know, doing stupid things, vandalizing buildings and, you know, later drinking and driving and getting into fights and just sort of taking reckless, uh, or yeah, taking stupid and reckless risks. And, you know, ordinarily, I mean, teenage boys in general, aren't like always the brightest bunch and aren't always the best at sort of risk (laughs) assessment. But when you remove like oversight, when you remove, especially for boys, like no kind of father figure or like older male presence around to kind of contain that energy or channel it in a more productive direction, you know, it's just like a bunch of 15 year old boys hanging out together. And like, naturally, you're just sort of daring each other to sort of up the ante and do increasingly more foolhardy things. Yeah, I guess it's like a, remember that show Jackass? Yes. You were just living that. Yeah. 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 You were in the Air Force and you excelled there. And eventually you found your way to Yale via something called the Warrior Scholar Program. So tell us what that is and what it was like when you got to Yale. Uh, Yeah, well, so my final year before my enlistment was about to conclude, I started to really, you know, finally at age, what, 24, take my future seriously. You know, because I joined the Air Force kind of on a whim. I was 17. I didn't really know what I was doing. I just knew that the path I was on was, you know, really bleak and not going anywhere good. And so... The military was like a lifeline to just get out of there and try to start a new life, remake myself and my fortunes and sort of see if I could find a better way to live. But, you know, it wasn't like, oh, the military is this great thing and I really want to do it. It was just, you know, this kind of let's just see where this goes. And then, you know, by the time I reached my 20s, I was thinking, okay, what am I, what do I want? You know, I joined the military because the life I had wasn't what I wanted. And now what do I actually want to do with my life? And um, so, you know, I Googled around and eventually found myself in, um, yeah, this the Warrior Scholar Project, which, I mean, it's like, it's not, it's not a program that like actually gets vets into college. That's not like its purpose. Its purpose is basically just like an academic boot camp. Like, hey, a lot of you vets have not been in school for a while and your skills are rusty. So we're going to like teach you how to write an essay and like, teach you, you know, what, like, what is, what is college life like and what, you know, how to be a good student and develop good study habits and, you know, sort of help sort of walk you through the sort of application process, you know, for if, and when you apply to college, you know, 
here's kind of the steps you should take and here's how to get a recommendation letter, like very basic things, like things that, you know, if you're a kid who has parents who went to college, you know, this is all second nature to you because you hear it everywhere you go. But when you are, you know, come from an environment where you're a first generation student or just someone who's not familiar with the college process, I didn't even take the SAT in high school. I just had no idea. And so, yeah, this two week program, and yeah, I developed good relationships with the instructors and with the tutors and, you know, they could tell that I was taking it seriously and that I had some promise. And then, yeah, so that was what summer of 2014. And then, yeah, by 2015, I, you know, sent my applications in for different colleges, uh, different universities and, and got into Yale. And, um, yeah, it was, I was just shocked. You know, I, I really didn't think that they would accept me. I didn't really know if any of the schools I applied to would accept me because I graduated with a 2.2 GPA in high school. I took some night classes at community college, but I didn't have that many credits. Like it was like my academic transcript was just very scattered and like there was nothing there indicating that I would be a good student. I did take the SAT finally uh, and I did get a good score. So that was like the one thing in my file that showed like, oh, maybe he'd be a decent student. But other than that, it was like, okay, you know, he barely graduated high school and he like went to some night classes and, you know, but, you know, they, they took a chance and I am thankful for that, but yeah, I arrived at Yale and it was, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. No. So you arrive at Yale in 2015. Mm -hmm. Was that the year? So just in time, (laughs) just in time for everything that, that, started to happen around that time. So, you know, part of the reason you're talking to me and and that you wrote this book and that I think a lot of our listeners are probably familiar with you is that you really started to think about the culture wars and, you know, you were uniquely positioned to look at, you know, some of these assumptions people make about identity and social class and, um, you know, all of the isms, racism, sexism, et cetera, et cetera. And that's, you, you actually, you don't get to that till about three quarters of the way through the book. But when you, when you get there, there are a lot of incidents that, that we recognize. So the, the infamous uh, Erica Christakis Halloween costume memo happened when you were, what, a, a, a freshman, your, your first year. And is that right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. you had a class that she taught. So she taught the, a class called the concept of the problem child. And you were in that class. Well, I wasn't. I I tried to get in, and I so so, <laughs> yeah. That the class was being offered my first semester at Yale, and I you know they have this weird thing at Yale where like you, you know shopping period, and then you have to apply for certain courses because they're overbooked or whatever. But basically, the course was so in demand that she would basically could only take seniors, and. I remember I emailed her, you know, basically saying, like, I think I could get a lot out of this course. Maybe I could bring my own unique perspective to it. And she's like, look, like, the next time I offer this course, let me know and I can get you in. But right now it's just, you know, it's just, yeah, it's not going to work. And so I thought, okay, you know, I'll try again next semester or next year when she offers this course. And then, and that was, yeah, that was September. I got out of the Air Force in August, started classes in September. And then in October, this very strange thing happened with the Halloween costume controversy where, yeah, the Yale administration told students, you know, don't culturally appropriate costumes and whatever. And Erica Christakis, and later her husband, I mean, they basically just defended freedom of expression. They attempted to treat the students like adults and said, you know, do we really need the administration interfering in something as, you know, kind of 
whatever frivolous as Halloween costumes. I think you're all adults. If you guys dress a certain way and have, you know, take issue, you all can communicate with each other. And the response to that was hundreds of students marching around the campus calling for Erica and Nicholas to be fired and calling them racist and bigoted and saying like, you know, these, you know, this is, this incident is emblematic of systemic racism at the university and how it represents, you know, uh, the oppressive structures and, you know, all the sort of buzzwords and lingo of elite academia, you know, but for me, uh, I wasn't familiar with any of this. I was from a completely different world, you know, living in foster homes and the kind of environment I was in in Red Bluff and then later the military and stationed overseas. And you know, I was in for eight years. It's, it's a long time. And then I get to campus and I'm yeah, basically seeing, you know, some of the most privilege and i don't mean you know, i don't I, this word privilege you it's can overused use it now, it's, it's okay but we, can't, it's, we haven't come up with a better one so. <laughs> but I, I i don't even mean like materially privileged in the sense that like they're rich but also privileged in the sense that like they had normal you know conventional childhoods they had mothers and fathers like they knew where they were going to live every like like the kind of privilege that people take for granted and i make this point in the book that i've actually met a lot of affluent and well-to-do people who you know they they're you know they they have at least attempted to imagine what it would be like to be poor. Like they kind of recognize, yes, I grew up well off. I think it would be really hard to be poor. I've tried to imagine, put my, you know, walk in the shoes of someone mentally, what that would be like. I've never met any rich person or affluent person who has attempted to imagine what it would be like to grow up without their family, to like not know where you're going to live next week or whether the person you think of as your foster brother is going to be taken from you tomorrow. Like just that extreme instability in day-to-day life, um, whether you're going to have to change schools, like how long is this teacher going to be around, like, how, you know, whatever. And so when people usually throw the word privilege around, they, they mean like, oh, you're whatever, you're white or you're rich or you're whatever. And I'm like, I'm talking about like basic privilege of like, you know who your family is, like, you know who your dad is, like those kinds of things that no one even thinks about because they take it so for granted. You know, when people grow up rich, they take money for granted. When they grow up with stable families, they take them for granted. And so, yeah, when I use that term, I mean like these students and graduates of elite universities, they have a privilege that they don't even recognize is not possible for, you know, so many kids, uh, sidelined and struggling kids in the country. Did your classmates know your story? Um, most of them didn't. Like my, my the, the f- students that I developed friendships with and, you know, became close with and, you know, would hang out with over longer periods, they would know. But like, my, you know, I wouldn't talk like in classes or seminars or something. I don't just suddenly start bringing this up. I think they may have had, so, you know, because I looked a little bit older. So some of the students had questions. And so like, it became kind of semi-known in my classes and stuff. Oh, he was in the Air Force. So like, they knew that about me, but they didn't really know how I grew up and my background and those kinds of things. So and that was fine in a way. I actually, to some extent, I'm glad that was the case because they spoke more freely around me. And, you know, in a weird way, you know, they look at me like, oh, like mixed race Asian guy. He probably, you know, there were there was like, I remember I talked to this one female student, this young woman who had went to Exeter, grew, you know, she was from Greenwich, rich family, the whole thing. And she told me I was too privileged to understand the pain that the Christakis email had caused students. Ugh. And she was just basically making these inferences like, oh, you're a cisgendered, heterosexual, able-bodied, male, mixed race, Asian, whatever. Like, you know, you tick these categories, these boxes, and therefore you're a privileged person. And it was illuminating for me that that's, that's how they think about the world, that it doesn't actually matter, like the difficulties you experience. It's just all identity politics. Yeah. There's another amazing moment where you talk about being at a party and meeting a, a young woman who is also Asian 
And uh, she says, my mom was super strict growing up. Classic Asian mom. I'm sure you know what I mean. And you say, well, my mom is Korean, but my family life wasn't really like that. And she goes, oh, so you didn't have a traumatic childhood? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I just, you know, whatever, change the subject. I didn't, you know, I don't like, you know, I, I, you know, it's funny. I wrote a whole book about this and my childhood and everything. But like in everyday normal circumstances, this is not something I enjoy talking about or dwelling on or whatever. It's just you know, especially in that kind of environment, right? I think we were at like a party or something and, you know, it's not the right place to start talking about this. But yeah, she brought this up. And in her mind, yeah, if you have like a strict Asian tiger mom, that's trauma is just like, oh, my parents wanted me to go to good college and they like made sure I did my homework and whatever. Like that's, yeah, I don't know how extreme it was, but like in her mind, that's what trauma was. And, you know, it didn't occur to her, you know, that like, yeah. Yeah. you know, people there's, you know, trauma can mean different things, but the way that these students used it was a lot different than I think what a lot of people outside of elite universities, how they would use it. Yeah. So like, was it in college as an undergraduate that you started to really feel like like a social scientist? I mean, you, you have this sort of very anthropological approach to the world. Were you thinking, huh, I can I can do something with this? Did you want to be an academic? Like what was kind of, how are the wheels of your mind turning during this time? Yeah, I think by this point I was pretty set on going to grad school, doing something in psychology. I think, yeah, I had applied for a PhD my, um, yeah, the summer before my final year of undergrad. And so I knew I wanted to, you know, continue my education and do something in the world of, you know, academia or ideas or writing or something along these lines. And yeah, that was the, yeah, I mean, that was, that was basically it. I mean, I think I had that idea, even when I started college, that this was in the back of my mind that I'd always been interested in social science and psychology, human behavior, human nature. And then, yeah, when I was, I worked as a research assistant at a psychology lab at Yale and later uh, did a summer research internship at Stanford. And, you know, I enjoyed these experiences and I thought it was really interesting that you could actually sort of systematically and scientifically, at least to some degree, you know, understand and predict behavior. And so that was really cool to me. And I knew, yeah, I wanted to continue on, you know, what, when was this 2017? Like this was, you know, 2017, kind of the political correctness, wokeness stuff was like becoming yeah, increasingly Yeah, so were well you like listening to Jordan Peterson and stuff like that? W were you listening to all the podcasts? Um, 2017. So I, I was familiar with Jordan Peterson. It's funny, the first time I actually heard about him, I had Googled this. I think this was before the controversy around him. Late 2016, maybe. I Googled like, you know, how to get into a PhD program in psychology, something like that. And this YouTube video popped up and it was uh, Jordan uh, before he was famous, this was like a like it was a one of those YouTube videos where it's just like a like a blank black screen and audio oh, only. Yes. The audio and it was it was three yeah <laughs> yeah and it was three hours long and I just heard you know oh it, it was something like you know professor explains how to get into grad school something like For that three like, hours you know, it's three hours only, it was a Q &A. only Jordan Peterson could yeah, exactly. take three hours to explain <laughs> yeah. that it was like three hours long and it was like I think you know it was audio only but I think he was like in a classroom. And he just like was like holding forth and like, you know, whatever. And uh, and these students were asking him all these questions and he was just going on answering all of them. And he'd give, you know, 20 minute answers to <laughs> basic questions, which is very Jordan Peterson. And um, I found it actually really helpful. And it was very like 
uh, honest and like unflinching that kind of, you know, that Peter Sodia and just like, look, like you're gonna, you're like, you're gonna have to spend hours, you know, doing, you're gonna have to get top GRE scores. You're gonna have to get straight A's. You're gonna have to do this. Like he was just like, he wasn't sugarcoating anything. And he, he said like, even at the end of this, you're probably not going to get in because, you know, top PhD programs are so competitive that even if you do everything right, you still only have like, you know, like a less than 50% chance. <laughs> I was like, damn, like, you know, but I, but I appreciated that. I'm like, here's someone who's actually telling it like, cause I would read like articles or like essays and get advice from people and it was all very chipper and very nice and everything but this this kind of jordan peters but i didn't know who he was i was like oh canadian professor i'm like okay you know cool and then it was like six months later that i saw yeah he he blew up and i was like is that the same dude and yeah it turned out to be the same same guy but by that point 2017 yeah i think i was like i was probably listening to joe rogan by that point and did your did your know. classmates know that? Did oh, you I have to Sam, keep that a secret? I, no, I didn't. I didn't keep it a secret. I listened to Sam Harris too. I listened, you know, I, yeah. And I guess like the IDW stuff was kind of picking up around yeah. this point. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, I was kind of intrigued by it. Yeah, I would tell people I, was, I didn't care. Because like the sort by, by 2017, I'd been, you know, I, I was like my, you know, second or third year at Yale and I had made some friends and I kind of knew who my social circle was and everything. And so, you know, I hung out with more sort of open-minded students. And so, yeah. And I'd also seen, you know, kind of, I don't think people were using this term cancel culture, but I was just seeing, you know, more and more students and, and faculty and administrators like try to get their colleagues fired and other people. And it was happening to some extent, I think in journalism too. And I thought like, maybe this is just an American thing. And so that was one reason why I applied to study at the University of Cambridge to just go to England and kind of get away from all the political correctness stuff. And then I get to Cambridge and it's the same thing. And funny enough, so, you know, like there was a postdoc my first year at Cambridge that got fired from the sociology department. And then Jordan Peterson was actually supposed to be a guest research fellow on campus and some activists on campus petitioned and got him. Oh, I remember that. Yeah. This was, yeah, 2019. And so it was like, oh, it's, it's here too. And that was the point where I was like, "Ah, I'm not going to be an academic. This is just too crazy for me. Yeah. So, okay. So I'm really curious. So there were students at Yale at this time who were noticing this stuff and commenting on it. Was it like in the, in the back channels? Like, were there any, was it just assumed that most people agreed with the students who were campaigning against the Christakis's and that anybody who differed just had to be quiet or like what, what was the kind of discourse climate? Uh, yeah, it was like hushed tones where like, I think people, I don't know if people actually thought about like who held the numerical majority opinion. I think it was just, it just, people knew that if you express a certain view, you risked being called a whatever, racist or a bigot or whatever the terms, you know, white supremacist. I don't think that had quite taken off yet. It was still, people were still saying racist, but white supremacist took off like in 2018, 2019. And so people just, you know, no one wants to be called racist. I mean, I think today it's kind of lost its power, but back then people didn't want to be called that. And so it was like, you know, just kind of like, yeah, this is kind of ridiculous. Yeah, I know. Like kind of hushed toads of like people would quietly question it, but, you know, publicly, you know, people would, there was only one thing you could say publicly. And that was that, you know, I condemn whatever they said and that I'm, you know, stand with the students who are feeling so hurt and blah, blah. And so, yeah. And and that was actually an interesting lesson for me from that kind of, you know, that sort of sociological perspective that 
for me, I was curious, like, what is the actual majority opinion? And my sense was that it was like the people who were strident activists who were like sincere in their efforts to try to get these professors fired. And they had like, you know, they had this whole list of demands. That was a big thing. I don't know if this still exists, but like they went to the Yale president's house in the middle of the night with megaphones and like, you know, he, they woke him up out of a dead sleep. Like there's a famous picture of him in the Yale daily news of his like hair disheveled. And he's like outside on his porch and you see these students. Yeah. And well, this is like midnight and, uh, and they read him the list of demands and like, you know, you will hire more faculties from marginalized groups and you'll do this, that, and the other. And so, you know, and my impression was that it was probably maybe 10 to 20% of the students who were in that category of just very strident activists. And then probably like, you know, 10 to 20% who were very against it, but just quiet. And then like, I don't know, 70 to 80% who just didn't care. Like they were just kind of neutral. They just wanted to be college students and hang out and, you know, whatever, like, you know, do their work and have fun and just live the college experience. And they, they just, you know, whatever, they just did the simplest thing possible, which was just keep their mouth shut or just say the thing you needed to say to just get through and not be called bad right. names. Yeah. What about the faculty? Did you feel like you, you were under pressure by your professors to say this or that, write a paper a certain way? Would you have been penalized if you had expressed certain views in the classroom or in a paper? Hmm. Fortunately, the classes I took were like pretty, like, I didn't take any, the, those classes do exist, like the, the, that are infused with ideology. I think psychology was still pretty good. I don't know I was how it say, is now. I mean, psychology yeah. is pretty captured now. Yeah, um, I think it was still okay then. Um the professors were great. And, and it was the self-selecting, right? Like I would look at the syllabus and the course descriptions and only take courses that sounded like sensible and rigorous and non-crazy. So I didn't actually feel that much pressure to do like there were like seminar discussions where people would just as like, you know, like Trump was elected while I was an undergrad and like, you know, whatever, like I, I was not a fan of Trump, but I also understood like I, like I had family members who voted for him, like my adoptive family. These, you know, these were like poor people in California and Oregon. And like, I just like, I knew people like that. And it did bother me that like, they just looked down on those people and would just assume that everyone agrees. So it was like in a seminar, some student would just say like, or, you know, like the way Trump Trump voters would do this, that or the other. And I was like very snide. And at those moments, there were times where I felt like I should say something. But, you know, I didn't know. Like my, I assumed my professors, actually, some, sometimes professors would, <laughs> sometimes professors would like randomly insult Trump in the middle of a lecture. You know, like I went to this, uh, you know, I took this class on on autism and it was like a very sort of by the book, empirically based sort of here's what's going on with this mental condition. But then randomly, you know, he'd like read the symptoms of, you know, some mental disorder or behavioral condition. And then he would say, hmm, sounds like a certain president, huh? And like, just go right on. And it's like, why would you need to insert that no, in your lecture? I don't think Trump is autistic. Many <laughs> but, things. I don't right. think that's one of them. But that was like, you know, so it was like the dominant view on campus was like, everyone hates Trump and we all agree we hate Trump, right? And it's like, okay, but, you know, you don't know who here doesn't feel that way, but we all just have to go along with it. And so, you know, I just, I did sort of make sure to whatever, like not rock the boat. I needed to pass the classes. I needed to get into grad school. And so the assignments themselves, I didn't feel like I had to um, bend my views in any way. But there were moments like, yeah, where I felt like I should at least say, like, how do you know that you, everyone here agrees with that? You know, like, why would you just assume that? But I didn't. And, you know, maybe I should have. Wow. It's amazing that only 10 to 20% of the students are represented by 
those sorts of actions and that activism? I mean, it's such an obvious question, but I'm not really sure what the answer is. Why do you think they get so much attention? Like, why is the faculty and the administration so cowed by them? Yeah, it's it's a good question. I mean, I think part of it is just that 10 to 20 percent, they're united. They are driven by the same vision. They're willing to do things like wake the president, you know, they're willing to like get, you know, 300 students to go to the president's house in the middle of the night with megaphones and, or, you know, this didn't happen at Yale, but this did happen at other universities where like, I think at Princeton, they like barricaded themselves in the president's office. And, you know, they're willing to just take these very costly actions. These universities are also very, like, I was surprised at how sensitive and prickly they were about the reputation of the institution. And so they would basically do anything to like avoid bad publicity. And so, you know, if some reporter were to say like, oh, you know, whatever, the, these professors are being called racist and, you know, these students are upset unless they, you know, unless they, uh, the university or the administration agrees to do this, that, and the other. And so, you know, the administrators, I think politically they sympathize with the students, even if they think they're misguided to some of them, I think they're just like, yeah, their hearts are in the right place. Just give them what they want. And hopefully this thing will blow over. And so, so that's one part of it. The other part is like, a lot of the professors, I would say more of the professors than the administrators, I think the administrators are probably more sort of left-wing and more ideological than the professors. But the professors are usually just like, you know, they're nerds who want to do their research and they don't want to be bothered with politics or whatever's going on. And the, you know, so, some of them are activists, like some, there are professor activists, but most professors just enjoy doing their like niche research subjects in their area of expertise and writing papers and going to conferences and that's their life and they enjoy it. And they don't want to have to like suddenly be engulfed with students coming at them and emailing them and harassing them. Like I remember there was one professor, I was shocked by this at the time that he was, you know, he was a tenured full professor at Yale. You know, he was like an icon in his field. And I had a conversation with him where he had tweeted something in support of the Christakis and defending academic freedom. He tweeted this and, you know, he was confiding in me. He was like, yeah, I, you know, I tweeted this and like suddenly I was getting hundreds of emails from students and tagged on Twitter and people, you know, dunking on me and saying all these mean things. And he was like, yeah, I was like, you know, it really stung to see all of that. And I'm just, you know, I'm just sitting here thinking like, man, you're like a tenured full professor at one of the greatest universities in the world. Like, why do you care what a bunch of 19 year old kids think about you? Like, you know, you're standing up for your colleagues, you're standing up for something you believe in, but you know, there, he was, you know, sensitive to public opinion and he didn't want to like, every time he opened his inbox, there were another 30 emails calling him racist. You know, he just, you know, he wants to keep his inbox clear and focus on his research. (laughs) You know what I mean? But it is, it's like this, no adults in the room kind of feeling. Yeah. 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 And I mean, you, you make a really interesting point, which again is sort of obvious, but I'd never thought about it in quite these terms that, that college extends adolescence like way past where it would be normally. I mean, is sort of inherently an infantilizing kind of institution. Yeah. And especially these residential colleges where like this idea of going away to college, you know, like this is like whenever you see movies about college or like see representations of college or how it's discussed in the media, that's the image people have of like, oh, you leave your parents' house and go away to college. And that's actually not typical. Like the typical college experience is like you live pretty close to home, maybe commute to your community college or your state school, like the flagship state school that's like two hours from where you grew up or whatever. This idea of like, you know, going away and living on campus in a leafy 
you know, New England University, it's just like not the common experience. But then, yeah, when I got there, it's like, you know, you have people there 18 to 22. And then if you go to grad school, it goes even even longer where you're just like living in this little like commune and you don't have to worry about anything and you don't even, you don't drive a car. You don't do like, you don't go to work. Like most of these students didn't work jobs. Like, you know, where I grew up, like, so my sister ended up going, you know, she went to a state school and she worked part-time as a barista. And that's like a normal college experience is like, you're working part-time to help pay your rent or cover a little bit of your tuition or student loans or whatever. And nobody at an Ivy league school works. I mean, some of them had like, this was funny. This actually yeah, it was upsetting to me where, so I was there on the GI Bill and I got a stipend and that was fine, but I, I enlisted for eight years before that. And so, but there was like this program on campus where, you know, if you, if your family earns less than a certain amount of money or whatever, like your tuition is basically covered, but I think you had to like work part-time on campus to like, whatever, that's like part of the deal. So you'd like, yeah, like a work study job. Work study. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. And so like, you know, these, yeah, they work like two hours a week in the library or like, you know, maybe help up the dining staff or something. And like, there were all like, it seemed like, you know, all of these like endless op-eds and stuff, we need to eliminate the work study program. It's not fair that, you know, we have to work. And I'm like, you are like, I, I don't know. I just, I just couldn't believe no, I know. that. My, my work study job was uh, much easier than my studying. <laughs> yeah. It's just, it was like, it, it was infuriating to me. Cause I'm like, have you never worked before? Like when I was in high school, I worked as a bus boy and a dishwasher and then later a bag boy at a grocery store. And like, I always had these kind of part-time jobs and just the fact that you're 18 years old and you have free tuition, you have a full ride. You didn't have to you know, you didn't have to enlist in the military. You didn't have to do anything. You're just working a couple hours a week. And they were acting like this was this, like, you know, this, this is oppression. This is, we're being victimized by the university. And yeah, I just, I, I, I couldn't stand that. Yeah. Just this sense of entitlement from a lot of these students, not just them. I mean, the, the rich, you know, the, the students who didn't have to do that, they were entitled in their own ways too, but it was just this constant anxiety around like, you know, we're at Yale and we, you know, we're this privileged group and, you know, we shouldn't have to do anything and no one should ever offend us and we should never experience any difficulty or hardship. And all of that goes along with this point that you made earlier about how it just extends adolescence. You know, you're, you're basically like this adult child on campus. Well, so like, you know, you're now a social psychologist. To what do you attribute this kind of fragility and self-righteousness? I mean, we talk about this all the time and we know about coddling and we know about Jonathan Haidt's research and listeners will be familiar with all of this. But what is your take? That was the first hour of my conversation with Rob Henderson. To hear the rest, become a paying subscriber at megandom.substack.com. Rob is the author of Troubled, a memoir of foster care, family, and social class. It is out this week, February 20th, from Simon & Schuster's Gallery Books. Rob also publishes a very popular Substack newsletter at robhenderson.com. I will also tell you that Rob is joining us in the Unspeakeasy online community next month for a private visit. If you are a member of the Unspeakeasy, you know that we have authors and um, other interesting people coming in and doing, um, you know, private hangouts with us, talking about their ideas, answering our questions. Everything is off the record. These um, visits have been fantastic so far, and we're lucky enough to have uh, Rob joining us. So if you're not yet a member of the Unspeakeasy and you uh, qualify for membership, <laughs> this would be a great time for you to join. I will also be in Austin, Texas uh, next week talking about 
all kinds of things with Moon Tower Verses. You can go to moontowerminion.org. You don't have to apply for membership to that. You can just show up. We're also doing an unspeakeasy retreat that weekend, March 2nd, 3rd, with Sarah Heppala and Ariel Isaac Norman. If there is availability, you can find out at theunspeakeasy.com. You can also find out all about our other retreats, including Seattle in May with Katie Herzog. That's it for now. I'll be back next week with another super nuanced guest. Thanks for listening. See you then.